From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Superpower School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Dander, and in today's show, we have a bit of a James Bond theme. Anyone that's a fan of James Bond or any kind of spy movies, I've certainly got a guest that's going to be talking about that subject matter today. He is a former corporate spy, best-selling author, the author of a book called Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. I'm joined today by the amazing Robert Kerbeck. Hey, Robert, how are you doing? I'm doing great after that introduction, Patty. That was fantastic. <laughs> Did I get the surname right? Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Robert Kerbeck. That's me. Got it. Okay. I'm glad I only have to say your surname once in the episode because I've been practicing and I kept getting it wrong. So, Robert, tell us about your background because from what I've read about you, I was just blown away. You have like this amazing story. So it'd be great if you could share some of that with the listeners. Yeah, I would imagine I'm the first corporate spy you've interviewed. I think that when, you know, my agent, you know, when I wrote this book and my agent submitted it out to publishers, they really freaked out because no one had ever written a book that was a former corporate spy. Like people don't even know this world exists, right? We know the Russians spy on the Chinese and the Chinese spy on us. But most people have no idea that major corporations are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year to spy on each other. And what they do is they hire spies. I come from Philadelphia and my family is very well known in the automobile business. My great grandfather sold horse carriages before cars were invented, switched to selling cars. My grandfather took over that dealership. My father took over that dealership and I was supposed to take over that dealership. And when I was in college, I got really into acting. I fell in love with acting. And when I graduated, I went to work for my father briefly in the car business and it, and it wasn't for me. It just didn't feel right. And of course, then I moved to New York to try to be an actor and I stumble into this job as a corporate spy, which is far more nefarious and devious than car sales. So a little bit of irony right off the bat there that here I didn't want to be a car salesman because it felt dishonest. And then I stumble into this job as a corporate spy. What were some of the influences that may have led you down this path? Well, you know, that's a great question. And I think that I, you know, I've had a bunch of careers, right? You know, obviously I car sales, I studied English. I, you know, I was an English major in college before I fell in love with acting. So there's the writing part, which now I've circled back to acting. Then of course, corporate spy. And then at a certain point when the crash of 2008 came and I, all corporate spying dried up because corporations at that point were just trying to survive or, you know, we thought the world was ending. So many of the big uh, corporations, Lehman Brothers went under and Bear Stearns went under and, you know, all of these firms went under. So they weren't spending money now to see what their competitors were doing. They were just trying to survive. So I needed a real job. And I took a job in corporate America as an executive recruiter. Um, and a lot of your listeners may know that we call those headhunters, right? So I've had a lot of different careers. And so I think that the, the common theme in all of them, and this goes back to childhood, is storytelling, right? I was always a good storyteller. Now, we can also th say that means you were a good liar, right? So, you know, when I was a young kid, you know, I had a sister and anytime my sister did anything wrong, she got caught and she got in trouble. When I did things wrong, I didn't get caught. I never got in trouble. I mean, I did far, you know, I was far worse than my sister was, but she was the one always getting caught. And 
So right away, I could see I had an ability to read a situation and figure out what I needed to do, what I needed to say, how I needed to behave to not get in trouble and to not have consequences for my actions, basically. So with all of that amazing background, experiences, life skills that you had, what superpower would you like to bring to this episode? I think my ability to read people, read situations, read the room. And I think that's something that it, it shocks me how many people have no idea how to do it. And, and we've all been at the cocktail party where someone is telling the story and they're going on and on and on. And they have no ability in that moment to read that we're not interested in the story, that they've lost us, that they're going on too long, that they're saying the things that are inappropriate, whatever the situation is, right? But they don't have the ability to read the situation, you know, and have that kind of emotional intelligence to say and to see that people are bored or people are frustrated or people are angry or whatever it is. And that's something I've been fortunate. That's my superpower. And that brings me nicely on to the move that you made into becoming a corporate spy. So could Mm. you share that story? How did that come about? Like, what was the moment in your life where you decided to take that step and and how? They don't advertise for corporate spies, you know, when, you know, back in the day in the phone book or on, or, you know, in the nineties, monster.com or, or today on LinkedIn, they're not saying corporate spy wanted, you know, though they're, they are out there, those jobs, and they are advertised in very, very subtle ways. You know, you'll see something called competitive intelligence or competitive analysis. Those firms are often secretly doing some sort of corporate spy. But yeah, so, you know, here I was an actor. I moved to New York. I didn't have the patience to be a waiter. I wasn't a late night guy. So bartending was out and I needed a job. And this friend of mine, one day started talking about this job. It was very mysterious. And then all of a sudden he shut up, realized he, he wasn't supposed to kind of talk about it. And, and I said, well, I'm desperate. I'm broke. I need a job. And so he said, okay, I can't really talk about it, but I'll get you an interview. And so the next day I went up to the Upper East Side and for your listeners and viewers, Upper East Side's kind of the ritziest area of Manhattan. And, you know, I was living in a, in a cave with three other people and I go to the Upper East Side and it's a luxury doorman building. And I get escorted up to the penthouse and this woman opens the door. And I seem to remember that she had a cigarette and a martini, but maybe that's just the writer in me exaggerating the drama of the situation. But one thing's for sure, when she invited me into her place, it was spectacular. Everything was white. Everything was brand new. Everything was pristine. And so right away, I knew whatever she did for a living, it was lucrative. She was making a lot of money. And so she proceeds to interview me, this strangest interview I've ever had, because she never asks me anything about my skills. She never tells me anything about the job. She doesn't ask to see the resume that I brought with me. She just asks a lot about my relationship with my father and how did he take me leaving the car business, which I thought was very strange. And eventually she sends me on my way. I didn't think I got the job. Then my buddy calls me and says, you're hired, but don't get too excited because she hires everyone because no one is able to do this job. <laughs> and, and the next day I went out to Brooklyn and this is back in the nineties when Brooklyn was, uh, you know, dangerous. And it's not, it's not the Brooklyn of today that's hip, you know, with the, you know, coffee shops on every corner. This was kind of coming out of the crack epidemic and it was very rough. And so I go into this, you know, dilapidated building and I go up to the fourth floor, you know, walk up, walk up 
up all the stairs, knock on the door. This very attractive woman with an Irish accent invites me in. And all of a sudden I'm going like, whoa, what is this job? You know, then she takes me into her bedroom. Then for sure, I thought that this was definitely, you know, off the rails. It was some very, very, you know, and, but then she sits down and proceeds to tell me that what we do is we spy on corporations and we use our acting skills to back in the day, call people on the phone and get people inside major corporations to tell us things that they should never, ever tell us. And that was the beginning of my apprenticeship as a corporate spy. I just assumed like you would entice people in the evening to have dinner with you or take them out and then you get some of their their secrets out. Was there any of that involved? There was. But what we began to find out is that the phone line enabled this very strange thing where you could have an incredibly personal relationship over the phone and yet they could not see you. So, so they could not recognize you, you know, in other words, in terms of any, you know, ramifications. And so we began to realize that we were actually able to get more private and secret information over the phone than we were able to get in person. Now, we did go sometimes in person to certain things and events and parties, but we really found that over the phone, because we would be presenting ourselves as someone else within the corporation, right? We would be impersonating other people. We were actors, so we could do accents. We could call from other offices, you know, and, you know, at firms today are global. So, you know, I could be, you know, this is Gerhard calling from the office in Frankfurt. We have some European Union regulators and we need some help from the States. Oh, hey, Gerhard, how's it going, boy? You know, because people are taught what in corporate America? To be a good corporate teammate, right? So you got the guy in Frankfurt on the line and he's telling you he's a crisis situation. Hey, how can I help? What do you need, Gerhard? And even though it's not logic that the questions I was asking that we would need that information, one of the things that we also learned is that it's like a very strange psychological effect that the more outlandish the ruse is, you know, hence, you know, hence the title of my book, Ruse, the more outlandish the ruse is, the more believable it becomes, right? It's very counterintuitive because what are the odds that someone is putting on a German accent and pretending to be someone in a Frankfurt office, London office, Dublin office, Tokyo office, because these firms, right, they have offices all over the place. What are the odds that somebody is doing it? Just, it's ludicrous, right? So people believe it and they, and they believe it's an emergency, you know, and one of the things I talk about is we talk about hacking, right? Hacking computers, hacking servers, you know, what I did is hack people. And I'm here to tell you that the best firewall, the best server, the best encryption, the best of all of that stuff cannot stop the weakest link in computer security and cybersecurity, and that's the human being, right? And I could get people to tell me their passwords all the time. I got people to put their information into the system and look up stuff. I got people to call because they didn't know the answer. They would call other people within the firm and get the answer and then give it to me because they wanted to be a good corporate teammate. And that was something that we used to our advantage. So the company you work for were then employed by a client to then get these secrets for them. Is that how it worked? Yeah, right. So, so as I said earlier, every major corporation hires spies. 
Now, are they going to tell you that they hire spies? Never in a million years, right? So they need plausible deniability that they're hiring spies. So how do they do that? They hire a firm that then hires me, right? So that there's an intermediary firm in between so that, you know, the CEO of, of the second largest bank in the world, if it ever came out, they could say, oh, well, we had no idea what Robert was doing. We never would have hired him if we knew that. But I'm here to tell you that I have presented my extracted data on more than one occasion directly to individuals that today are one step from being the CEO of their firm, which are some of the largest publicly traded companies in the world. So they're very well aware that they're paying for spies. Is there a set of rules that you have to abide by? <laughs> or are they very loose? <laughs> uh, there are I no think I've got my answer there already. But yeah. anyway, don't no. Yeah. No, there are no rules. And I think, you know, one of the things about the spying is, um, and I, of course, I, I deal with this in the book, which is the, the moral, you know, the moral reckoning. I tell people all the time, I'm not proud of what I did, though it is one hell of a crazy story and it makes for a, a great read, I think. But the, the way I rationalized it, and that's what it was, is, is that, you know, someone wrote a review of my book and they said, shank the man and rake in the bucks. Shank the man and rake in the bucks. And that's kind of how I felt about it. I'm like, you know, boo hoo for Goldman Sachs, like boo hoo for JP Morgan. You know, remember the 2008 crash where, you know, the greed of those firms, you know, arguably sank the global economy. Forget about the US economy, the global economy. So, you know, I'm not going to cry a lot of tears for me calling up. Uh, you know, Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan and getting information that maybe I shouldn't have. Right. But there was also, uh, you know, besides the moral question, there was the legal question. And, and at a couple of points, it got very dicey. And of course, th these episodes are in the book. At one point, I was mistaken for the world's most famous hacker that every agency in America was, was after. And they got onto my trail and my buddy that got me the job and they thought that we were this guy. And at one point we were, you know, in major jeopardy and we only kind of dodged that, you know, criminal investigation because they finally found the hacker they were searching for who had been on the run, was literally on the lam. And when they found him, they arrested him as a domestic terrorist, put him in shackles, solitary confinement, 23 hours a day. He went to jail for years. And somehow when they found him, they were so busy patting themselves in the back that they found that guy, the guy they were after, that they kind of just forgot about us. And they were kind of like, ah, well, well, you know, they, they didn't really press us about what we were doing, which was a really lucky break for us because if they had, we would have, we would have been in trouble. Wow. And I'm sure you got so many stories, Robert. Yeah. Of experiences. Are there any that you could share with us that really struck out for you from that time? Any that you may have thought, maybe I've gone too far here. Maybe I should have stopped. Well, you know, one of the things that I started to do was when we got the, when I started the job, the woman, you know, who had the firm hired me and my buddy, you know, we were the first men that she'd ever hired. She had a number of women spies and she did not believe that men could do the job. She only hired women, but my buddy had convinced her uh, to hire him and he was doing okay. So then he got me the job. When I first got it, I was really struggling. The women were far better at the job. And the reason that they were better is they were able to reflect and deflect better than men. Men kind of get their egos involved sometimes. Women can be more chameleon-like and kind of read the room better simply, right? That's what, the, that's what these female spies were doing. 
I recently did an event with former CIA spy Valerie Plame, who was outed by the Bush administration in 2003. And Valerie was the most, I said, you're the most famous CIA agent ever outed by the U.S. government. She said, Robert, I'm the only CIA agent ever outed by the U.S. government. And I did a conference with Valerie. We were on a panel together and she was saying that women made better spies, which is interesting because I just read a statistic the other day that 82% of CIA spies are still men and 75% of individuals in the cybersecurity industry are men. So if women are better spies, it would seem to me cybersecurity probably needs to hire more of them so that they're, again, able to ascertain better what's going on, right? The female spies were really good. And the reason they were good is they were going at female receptionists. Back in the day, most receptionists were female. Most assistants were female. That's changed a lot now. I'm talking about 90s and aughts. And when I would call receptionists, you know, when I would call assistants, they're trained to be gatekeepers. They would give me, they would not go with me at all. You know, the female spies would pretend to be an assistant calling another assistant. Oh, I'm in trouble. My boss is so mean to me. Oh, my boss is mean too. How can I help you? And they would help each other, right? Whereas that didn't work for me. So what I began to learn is I would go executive to executive. I would call the executives themselves. And and again, your listeners would probably think, well, you know, those those are, you know, those people are paid a lot of money. They've got MBAs from Harvard and, and Wharton. They're not going to be giving up. Oh, they, they were so easy to get information from because you would go executive to executive, kind of bro to bro. And so it was always shocking to me what I would find out. Not only would I get the secrets that I was after, but they would tell me who had a drinking problem, who was cheating on their wife, you know, like information that, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I could have sold to a tabloid, which of course I never did, you know, even though here I am rusing, which is, you know, not a very ethical thing, but we did have a line. That we were really, you know, I wasn't getting the credit card information of old ladies. I wasn't, you know, stealing money from people's accounts. I was just getting information about corporations. And so that was how I rationalized what I was doing. And it was amazing to me what these executives would tell me. And sometimes they would tell me things that I wish they had because I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe you told me that this person has done this thing. And nobody in the world knew about it, you know? Drunk driving incidents, major CEOs that had been covered up. So a lot of pretty crazy information. Would you say there was any special type of training that was needed or was that very much your life skills that you had brought to the table already? You mean to do the ruse, to do the kind of the, the rusing and scamming that we did to get the information? I mean, look, I think for me, it was sort of a perfect storm of I came from an entrepreneurial family, right? Obviously, my great grandfather sold horse carriages and, and said, hey, what are these things over here? Cars. I think that's the future. I'm switching over. So there's definitely an entrepreneurial, you know, gene in my, in my, in my DNA. And then of course, car sales, you know, you're learning how to read people, then acting, you know, when you're in a scene, whether it's on stage or in a movie, you're, you're working with your partner, you're seeing what's going on with your partner. And I also, you know, my father was very into the stock market. So I had some understanding of Wall Street. So all of those things just combined to just make me an ideal corporate spy. Probably, shall we do a quick experiment? Yeah, let's do it. Could imagine I'm some exec at some company. Yeah. And you're Robert. How would we take this conversation forward if you were trying to extract some information out of me? Great question. So before I would even pick up the phone call to call you, and believe it or not, people do pick up the phone call 
pick up the phone and make calls like this all the time today. And even though a lot of people don't pick up their phone, I have all of these tricks that I use. I will get you to pick up your phone. But one of the things I would do first before I even made the phone call to you was I would do a lot of research on you, right? I would do a lot of research on you. And nowadays you can learn so much about people so that I would know all kinds of things of you going in. So for example, you're from Birmingham, right? So I would do a lot of research on your background, where you went to school, what your favorite teams were, what your favorite TV shows were. And I would be looking for some connection there. So let's just say, I don't know what the the big football team in Birmingham is. What is it? So my local team would be West Bromwich Albion. Okay. So I would basically be aware if I saw something on your one of your social media pages that you were a big fan and I saw that they had won the day before or the star player tore his ACL. In our conversation, I would be bringing that up right away going, hey, you know, you, you, oh, you're a Birmingham, hey, are you a fan of blah, blah, blah? And you go, yeah, I love that team. You go, believe it or not, I know I'm in Tokyo, but I love that team too. And you're going to be like, my God, why do you love that team? Well, you know, you're, you're star striker, da, 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 da. I love that guy. And I mean, I was devastated when I heard he, he tore his ACL. And you'd be like, oh my God, I was devastated too. So now we're telephone buddies. Now we've bonded. We have a connection over this football team. So now I'm going to utilize that connection that I've made with you to now start going into what I need. Got it. And we did a little bit of that before we kicked off with the show where as soon as I mentioned Birmingham, you said, you have a great TV series. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right. Yeah, Peaky Blinders. Exactly. And so so we're, I'm using that connection you know, to establish a relationship with you so that now we're not strangers, we're buddies, we're buddies, we're bonded, right? And I'll also, and then as I, as I move into trying to get information from you, I always start by asking you a question that I know the answer to. I know the answer to. I don't need the information because I'm, what I'm trying to establish is I ask a question and you answer it. So it's a test. So when I ask you this question, that I know the answer to, I'm seeing if you're going to give me the answer. And then when you give me the answer, I'll go, yeah, that, yeah, that was pretty much what I thought. Or yeah, I had that. Or yeah, I knew that. But I, you know, you never know. Things change so much. Or oh yeah, things are changing all the time. Oh, and he, I, I, one more other, one more question. And by the way, I only need one more thing. One more thing. Just one more thing. And I ask you, da da da, and you tell me, and I go, oh my gosh, I forgot something. I did this last thing. Blah 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 blah. Oh, da 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 da. Oh my gosh, wait a second, I completely forgot. This is the last question, I promise. And I keep doing that over and over and over until I've gotten all the information from you. And sometimes people say, hey, wait a second. You said that that, that, that was the last question. I apologize. You're right. I promise this is the last one. And then I keep going and, and, and keep going. Even though I promise, even though I've said it's the last one, I keep asking questions until I've gotten all the information that I want. Or you basically say, I, I, look, I got to get off the phone. I, I, I can't talk to you more. I got to go, you know. And at which point I've gotten 95% of the information that I want. Oh my God. You look like you're in shock. <laughs> I, I, I'm almost thinking of how I run this podcast because that's kind of what I do. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> no, I'm right. But, oh, that's really interesting. So you build this emotional connection and that bonding at the start to really connect with the person. So I guess when emotions take over, we let our guard down. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. you're, you're establishing trust. You're establishing trust. You know, one of the things I do now, the author Frank Abagnale, who wrote the book, Catch Me If You Can, that was made into that wonderful movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. Frank Abagnale, I don't know Frank Abagnale, but he read my book and he flipped over it and he gave me this amazing blurb. 
And he's done all these cool things, recommending me for podcasts, for shows, to a speaker organization. You know, I, I went to San Francisco to speak because he recommended me. And But the one thing he said to me was, Robert, you have to use these skills you have now to help people. And so now I've been speaking to corporations and speaking at conferences about how to prevent this very type of what I call, you know, people hacking as opposed to computer hacking, right? Because we're spending, when I say we're, corporations are spending millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, even potentially billions of dollars. The cybersecurity industry is predicted to be a trillion dollar industry in the coming years, right? So there is so much money involved. And the amount of money that has spe- is being spent on the human element, on educating and training human beings to not fall prey to phishing and hacking and rusing is a tiny minuscule fraction of the amount of money that has is spent on the computers and the computer security, right? And the computer security and the firewall and the encryption and all of that is critical. But if the human being, if I can hack the human being, I can get the person inside the firm to tell me whatever I want to know and teach me whatever I need to learn so that I don't even need necessarily to, to hack the system or I'm getting the instruction by an employee on how to do it, right? And so that's something I've been I've been going out now is speaking a lot in terms of of how to stop cybercrime. And on that note, Robert, are there sort of two or three tips that you could give some of our listeners on how they can ensure they don't fall prey to this tactic? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's a movie, famous movie, uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross with Al Pacino and Alec Baldwin. And there's this great line where Alec Baldwin yells at this one guy, put the coffee down, put the coffee down. And I always want to tell people, put the device down, put the device down before you click on the link, right? Before you open the email or the link in the email or the link in the text to something that you're looking at, you're going, I don't know this for, I don't know, I don't recognize, you know, no, put the device down, don't click, put it down, take 30 seconds, take a minute think about it, ask somebody sitting next to you in the cubicle next to you, you know, you know, you know, go talk to somebody because, you know, nine times out of 10, those are phishing emails, phishing texts, phishing phone calls where they're trying to get you to click on something that is going to, in some way, shape or form, not be in your best interests. Right. And so that's something that I say is you really need to take time. If you do get the phone call, you know, in a corporate environment, you know, you, you almost all of these phishing, whether it's a text, a phone call or an email, they're adding the element of time. You know, they've got basically, you know, the ticking clock, you know, in the movie where the bomb is set, you know, 10, nine, eight, usually these texts, there's something about you need to do this right away. You've been hacked. There's fraud on your account. You, you've got to call us right away. You're going to, you're going to lose all this money. You better do, you know, so they're, so it's creating this pressure, right? And the sense of crisis. And that's another thing I say is anytime you feel that or you see that it's a red flag that it's not legitimate. And again, put the device down, put the device down. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Robert, because I didn't want this episode just to be about all of the dark side of this phenomenal area that no one's really looked into. And I wanted to leave people with some positive advice as well. So thank you for that. 